Genesis chapter 21, we are going to begin uh, reading in the first verse, and we'll take uh, two weeks with this chapter, but the first part of this chapter hangs together nicely. It is uh, the fulfillment of God's uh, promises, His long-standing promise. It recounts for us uh, the birth of Isaac, and it also concludes uh, this uh, running sort of soap opera narrative with Sarah and her maidservant, Hagar. Um, In the broader context, of course, this story is set in uh, the last ten chapters of the book of Genesis, this great Abrahamic uh, narrative and story. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right, where a seed was promised that would crush the head of the serpent. And, And the context of our text, as we seek to understand it and grasp it, stretches to the New Testament as well. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 9, Paul in Galatians chapter 4, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, quotes Genesis 21, that in your seed Isaac shall these promises be fulfilled. So this is a very important text uh, to us, and we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at this broader New Testament context uh, today for this reason. Uh, So let's uh, please rise for the reading of God's Word, if you are able. Genesis chapter 21, uh, verse 1 through 21. This is God's holy word. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son, Isaac, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make the nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, 
Lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, and I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness, and became an expert with the bow. He lifted. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Thus far, the reading of God's uh, holy word. Join me now in our prayer for illumination found there in our worship bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes to us from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. If you are using your pew Bible, you can find it on page 974. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Please join me in the prayer for illumination printed in your bulletin. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit, so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there's an outline in our worship bulletin. We are uh, looking at this uh, coming of laughter to Sarah after long last. And the outline is pretty simple. We want to look at uh, the heir is born, Jacob or Isaac rather, uh, the son Isaac of promise. The son of the slave is cast out, shall not inherit. And then we want to spend a little bit more time this sun- Sunday than, than normally uh, thinking about how the New Testament understands Sarah and Hagar and the birth of Isaac. Well, our our passage recounts pretty straightforwardly, uh, without any great fanfare, the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord had offered. And uh, we need to remember as we hear this text, um, see this fulfillment, that this promise had been made 25 years earlier. 
And 25 years is a pretty long time. Um, I don't know where you were 25 years ago. Some of you may not have been alive. I know some, many of the children, obviously, were not alive. Um, I don't know exactly where I was 25 years ago, but I know that I was still a student in seminary, hadn't yet graduated with my master's, I wasn't yet married, um, and life held a lot of promise as a 26-year-old, give or take. Um, I knew uh, the woman I would marry, I wanted to marry her, and I did. I hoped to have children I hope to have a career. I didn't know exactly what that uh, career would be. I'm still not quite sure what that career will be. We'll find out. But I didn't have 25 years ago, at the age of 26, I didn't have an explicit promise. You will get X. You will have Y. I didn't have anything like this special revelation that Abraham and Sarah had received. Many of my hopes have come true. Some have not. Life doesn't always uh, you know, give what you expect of it. No clue that I would be living in Washington, D.C. I was on the other side of the country. But I cannot imagine, it's really quite difficult, uh, what I would think or feel if I had received a special revelation from God, a special promise, uh, 25 years ago. And if 25 years had passed, and I had not yet received that thing that God said He was calling me to give to me in a very special way. That is a long, long time to wait for something that has been promised to you. Think of all that, it, that we've read about. We haven't read about the whole life and all the ups and downs of Abraham and Sarah. But we, we know he had gone to war to rescue his son or his nephew Lot. He had sojourned in foreign lands in Egypt in, in the area of Gerar, Philistia. He had gotten rich and powerful. And yet he had had real sorrow and bitterness. In his marriage, in his life. Right? Sarah had given up on the promise. She said, you know what? This isn't going to happen. Understandably, the ways of women, the natural way that women have children, had stopped. Take my servant, Hagar. Look, God said he would do this thing. He didn't necessarily spell out how. Just let's, let's, we'll figure this out. And this didn't go well. This had made her sad and bitter. When the angel had visited a year prior, so she's 89, Abraham's 99, had said, in a year, this is really going to happen. So after 24 years, the last window of time, right? And she just laughed. This theme through this section. Laughter, which is the Hebrew word for Isaac. Yeah, right. I believe it when I see it. But the Lord was true to His promise. And when the Lord visits His people, this word here is a pregnant term. He's often visiting them to save them, to deliver them, to assist them, to care for them. He visits His people, the same verb, in Egypt when He hears their cry of sorrow and slavery. And here He visits uh, Sarah. And make no mistake, this is a miraculous birth. Remember, uh, Paul will tell us that that the seed, the offspring promised uh, to Abraham, the singular seed, is Christ. And so just as Christ would be born of a virgin by miraculous divine intervention, having a Holy Spirit as his father, so Isaac is born of a miraculous visit of God from on high. And the emphasis of this text, as we read it, is on the word of the Lord, the promise of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord. These things were fulfilled just as God said, right when God said they would be. 
Another emphasis of this text, uh, just in the reading of it, is in the names, the, the proper names of Sarah and Isaac and Abraham. As we sang in Psalm 113 this morning, the Lord gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. And we experience this birth through the eyes, through the words of Sarah, her joy, her laughter. As we will sing in the close of our worship today, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. God gives us joy in His promises. Sarah's joy is expressed in her singing of a new song. And again, the name of Isaac, the name of laughter rings through it. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. It's not exactly clear what this laughter over or about Sarah is. She continues, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Of course God did. The angel did, right? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And Sarah's laughter is reflected in Isaac's name. It rings throughout this chapter eight times. The word Isaac in the various verbal forms of Yitzhak. Sarah's laughter is a fruit of her motherhood. I know that having a baby, I don't know firsthand obviously, but I know that having a baby can be a a difficult time, like emotions. The body is going through these remarkable transitions, but a time of great joy when you hold your child for the first time. Everyone who hears will laugh about me. It is, in Sarah's eyes, sort of an absurd joke in God's sense of humor that this 91-year-old woman who had given up on having children bore a child to he who was as good as dead, her husband. It is a miracle that Sarah, who had withered, who was dry, would give life and nurse a child. Abraham's name is also conspicuous through this text. The promise had come to both Sarah and Abraham. He is conspicuous for his age, adding to the miraculous character of the birth. He is conspicuous for his obedience, naming and circumcising Isaac as had been commanded. God had promised, back in Genesis 12, to make Abraham a great nation, that he would have uh, multitudes of children as the sand on the seashore. And that promise, as it became more and more clear, was that he would have those children through Sarah. 25 years. No children. That he would have land. That he would fill the land. That he would have royalty coming from his seed. And that this would come uh, through Sarah. And the New Testament tells us that the attempts at a workaround uh, aren't just sort of human folly. It is a, a contrast between the gospel, between faith, between the spirit and the law, the works of the flesh. That we could do God's work for Him. Yes, God has promised you great things, but you really got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. This attempt to do a workaround through the maidservant Hagar is condemned roundly in the New Testament. It is not faith. It is not faithful. Verse 12 in this passage reiterates... And this is quoted frequently in the New Testament. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
This is the promise, brothers and sisters, of election. God chose Abraham. God chose Isaac. Before we move on to our second point, to the casting out of the slave woman, let's hazard a guess why God was so slow, or let's reflect upon why God was so slow in fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Sarah. Now remember, Abraham is the great model of faith for us in the scriptures, even though he failed so often. He is the father of all believers, a picture of gospel faith. Not because of what he had, what he possessed, but because of what he hoped in. Remember, faith is the promise of things not seen. That assurance that God will do what we don't see him doing now. And that characterized 25 years of Abraham's believing existence, covenanted existence with God. He is the paragon of faith because he persevered through many failures for 25 years. As we have seen, this was not a glorious, sinless, direct line of progress and ascent. He shared his wife with other men when he knew the promise was imminent. Through her, he bore a child through his wife's maid at her suggestion, using the wisdom of the flesh. The key to Abraham's faith is not that he trusted that God could do the unlikely or the, you know, what would kind of help or or give him a little bit of a nudge. It was that God would do the impossible. And Paul really emphasizes this. Our text this morning in our catechism sermon was from Romans 4. God who raises the dead, brings life where people are dead, makes something out of nothing. This is God speaking ex nihilo, a word of new creation. It was the promise of the resurrection. Paul tells us that Abraham believed God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. That's not necessarily what Abraham believed at the beginning of the 25 years. You see, he learned to believe that faith is about creation ex nihilo. Isaac is the life that is given to a dead man. And in the next chapter, in the very next chapter, brothers and sisters, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, that sacrifice is all the more poignant, all the more painful and unimaginable. Because this promised child had been waited for and anticipated for so long. What are you kidding me, God? You want me to turn around and sacrifice this child? And Hebrews tells us, the book of Hebrews chapter 11, tells us that Abraham, in taking Isaac to Mount Moriah, the same mount upon which Christ would be crucified, Abraham still believed, even as he raised the knife to take his son's life, Abraham believed the word that God would give him offspring through this child, soon to be dead. Through his offspring, through Isaac, would his offspring be named. Because, Hebrews tells us, Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That that child would get up off of the burnt sacrificial pile and bear nations to God's glory. In short, Abraham's faith, both in fact and in terms of how it is told and represented to us, is strengthened through his trials, through his suffering, through his sorrows. Brothers and sisters, there's an important, profound lesson for us here. Our faith is strengthened through our trials. James can say to the church, Count it all joy, my brothers, 
I know this is one of those texts you don't really want to read, right? But there it is in the Bible. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you know when you're going to be perfect and complete? Not this afternoon. Not tomorrow, not next week. On the day of perfection, on the day of Christ's coming. When His glory is revealed, not only in His brilliant coming, but His glory is revealed in you, dear children. Abraham, in this chapter, receives the child. His faith gives birth to sight. And then he's asked to let go again. And what does that tell us, right? The life of faith remains the life of faith until it's over. Because Abraham knew that his only home, his only resting place, his only true comfort was in the heavenly city, the city of foundations. Abraham knew that he would have everything God promised on the far side of his own grave. Do we have that heavenly hope? Are we fixed in our faith on glory like that? I know I am not. That brings us to the second point. The son of the slave shall not inherit. Now this is an incredibly dramatic scene. You can imagine, you know, soap droppers being spun out of this thing, right? Sarah, Abraham, Hagar. And of course you might notice, you might not have noticed, that the son remains unnamed throughout this text. The unnamed son of the slave woman. The full range of human emotion is on display here. What's going on? The weaning of Isaac probably took place at about three years of age, two or three years old. And the tone of the story shifts dramatically. Sarah's overjoyed, right? She's laughing at the birth of this child. And three years later, we don't know everything that has transpired during that two or three years. But three years later, uh, she's angry. The truth of the matter is that Isaac's inheritance... And therefore, Sarah's inheritance, her place in the house, is not secure so long as the son of the slave is in the house. Now, there's an allegorical power to this story. God, brothers and sisters, is the author of history, of all history. But he's particularly the author of redemptive history. The scriptures in the Old Testament tell the story that God authored. He ordained it all. He brought it to pass. And the New Testament can look back on this history and see that God was teaching us spiritual lessons in it. That's what an allegory is. There's an allegorical power to this story that we're going to unpack in in our third point in a moment here. God authored this history that we might understand the power of grace. The grace of election. And the folly of thinking that the gospel can coexist. With salvation by works in the same household. You can't be both the son of a slave and the son of a free woman at the same time. You can't trust God and trust in your own striving at the same time. They're like oil and water. But there is a practical force here as well. Think about it. Abraham was by this time a very, very wealthy individual. He was a princely person. He went to war. He, he engaged in international affairs. He'll, he'll enter into a treaty with the king, Abimelech, in the next half of this chapter. Incredibly wealthy. And a brief, brief review of, of history of the ancient world, the medieval world, of our world, teaches how far a princely son will go to remove his rivals, right? There was a large inheritance at stake, probably billions of dollars 
than our money today. So with infant mortality quite high, Isaac's survival as an heir isn't really assured until his weaning. So this is his coming out party, as it were. This child's going to live. He's really going to be an heir. And now that he has lived past infancy, and all those infant diseases are no longer the primary threat to his survival, the main threat to Isaac's survival is his older brother, who stands to lose a lot. The backdrop of of Genesis is a war raging between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's That's a blessing. That's a promise. God says in the gospel promise, I will put enmity between your child and between the child of the serpent. It's a good thing the world hates us, brothers and sisters. Because it hates us because we're one with Christ. The scene opens at this feast and Sarah sees the unnamed slave's son laughing. Again, the play on Isaac's name. And there's ambiguity in the sense of of laughter. He could be mocking him or ridiculing the idea that this little child is going to live to inherit all the things that he's enjoyed for his 13 or 14 years of life. So this is an older brother looking at his pipsqueak younger brother. I had a brother uh, who died in an automobile accident when I was about 9 years old. But he was, he was 19. He was 10 years older than me. And I'll tell you right now, we used to play uh, computer games. Well, it wasn't a computer back then. In television, going back a few years, right? And I was better than he was at in television, which was the curse of my life. Because he pounded the living daylights out of me. Maybe that's the kind of laughter play that's going on here, right? Maybe the older brother's beaten up on. He's going to kill that kid. Maybe that's what she thought. Paul in Galatians interprets this laughter. He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. The word for laughter could also mean maybe more fun play. Maybe the two kids are really getting together. Maybe they're acting like genuine brothers. And Sarah says, a little bit of class consciousness. No, my son doesn't play with the slaves. Sarah seems a little bit petty and mean when we read this text. Sometimes the word for laughter, and I'm not the first person to think this, this was a medieval interpretation, maybe made to look Sarah a little bit better. Sometimes it includes uh, sexual overtones of play. Perhaps it is deeply inappropriate play. In chapter 26, a few chapters later, Abimelech will see Isaac, who's pretending to be his wife's sister, or his wife's brother again, will see him laughing, laughing with her. And he says, ah, they're married. Some medieval commentators took this reading, and then Sarah is trying to save her son from an older brother that in some way is attacking him. The bottom line is that this behavior leads Sarah to tell Abraham to cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Harsh, harsh words to our ears. Sarah is a protective, jealous mother. Her reference to the slave woman, as I said, denigrates Hagar, that woman. This is my house. Now, all the more so that I have a son who's going to inherit. This is my house and I'm not going to share it with anyone. These people don't know their place. And Abraham, for his part, is understandably, incredibly upset. Don't read uh, past that too quickly. He's angry. He's loved this boy for 13 years. It's his firstborn son. 
Excuse me. God tells him, do not be upset. Do everything your wife says. For, for this reason, through Isaac shall your offspring, shall your seed be named. God promises to bless the son of the slave as well for the sake of Abraham. But these are worldly blessings. He is not going to inherit the gifts that God has bestowed upon Abraham. 1 Peter 3, interestingly enough, lifts up Sarah as an example As a submissive wife who calls her husband Lord and does everything he says. But in this instance, obviously there are exceptions to every rule. That ordinary relationship between husband and wife is somewhat inverted. And Calvin says that Sarah's words here are inspired. When Paul quotes Sarah in the New Testament, he says, The scripture says, Sarah speaks a scripture. She is an oracle. Her anger against slavery is inspired. Abraham, again, as he is wont to do, obeys the voice of the Lord. There's a spiritual lesson here. Abraham still harbored love for Hagar, her son. These two women are two different kinds of ways to live in the world, the flesh and the spirit. And Abraham loves his flesh. He can look at his slave's son and say... Yeah, God might have given me Isaac, but I'm responsible for this one. Maybe he thinks it's good to have a backup. Isaac's still young. You never know what could happen. Maybe this boy is a hedge on God's promises. We like to make hedges on God's promises, right? We pray for our daily bread. We pray before meals. I hope all of us do. It's a wonderful anchor to piety, right? This meal, the hands that have made this meal are a gift from God. And yet we go home and our cupboards are full, our fridges are full, right? Like we we hedge against trusting in God each and every day that He will put food on our plate. Now, I'm not encouraging us to live careless lives and never have food in the house. But when we have piles of food and massive grocery stores overflowing with food, and we can order food to be delivered, it's a little bit easier not to trust in God. The poor really are blessed in this way. The son of flesh had to leave the church for faith to thrive. So Abraham rose early in the morning, just as he'll rise early in the morning to take Isaac to Mount Moriah. And even after the fulfillment of the promise, Abraham's going to have to again, each and every day in this life of faith, turn his back on the flesh, turn his back on his own works and trust in God. Another testing is around the corner. And this uh, story, the provision for Hagar in the wilderness, uh, our narrator, uh, Moses, kind of wraps up the whole story, right? It travels way into the future in terms of the timeline. But this is the end of that whole plot line. And even the marriage uh, to an Egyptian woman, remember, reminds us of of the antithesis of this bondage. The one born of slavery is going to be at war with Isaac and with his children. Ironic, isn't it, that Isaac's children, through Jacob, the twelve tribes, will be slaves of the Egyptians. And just wrapping things up, this brings us to the New Testament context. Of course, we want to always read Scripture in the light of Scripture. Unclear passages in the light of more clear passages. And we believe that, as St. Augustine taught, what is in the Old Testament concealed is in the New Testament revealed. 
What is the significance of this episode in the New Testament? Galatians chapter 4, our New Testament reading today, Paul identifies Isaac as the child born according to the promise. He's a, a picture of the gospel. Because God set his love on him before he was even born. God chose him. That's true of all of us. Isaac can point to nothing and say, See, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Yahweh. Isaac is a picture of grace. God's gift and what we inherit. Promise, spirit, faith for Paul all come together and they're pitted against the law of the flesh and works. And the circumcision party in the Galatian church is persecuting those who hold to this gracious picture of the gospel. Who welcome Gentiles into their midst and then say, well, yes, but you have to behave in the right way. You've got to eat the right food. You've got to be circumcised. They want to take faith in Jesus and add a little bit of obedience to show how special the church really is. Faith plus works. And Paul says, no, they cannot dwell together. You have to cast out that slavery. You have to cast out that woman. And brothers and sisters, this is an allegory. I won't sing my little Latin medieval song. I've only memorized one Latin medieval song about how the the medieval church fathers memorized what an allegory was. But an allegory teaches us how we have to live in faith. Every day we have to cast out the flesh. We have to repent. Every day we have to look to Christ again. The life of the Christian is the life of daily repentance. So Sarah and Isaac represent grace and God's spirit at work. And faith, if it's not alone, is not truly faith. That's why we say we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. In Romans 9, this Isaac is, is again carried into Paul's argument, in particular talking about the grace of election. Paul is addressing in this chapter the difficulty that not all Israel has come to believe in her Messiah. And wondering aloud whether God's promises to Israel have failed. Well, if they were real promises, why doesn't Israel believe? Paul writes, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his seed. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Again, quoting Genesis 21. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what a promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You see, this whole story teaches us about God's promises. Gifts to us. He chose us. Salvation is of the Lord. And he continues in the following verses to speak of Isaac's uh, children. uh, Through Jacob and Rebekah. Or Jacob and Esau. Not only us, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. In order that God's purposes of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's God's purpose of election. To teach us that we aren't saved by our own works. What's such a hard doctrine, pastor? You mean some sinners God saves and some sinners he doesn't? When you look out at the history of the world, the history of the church, it seems rather apparent. Why would God do such a thing? Because it's all of him. And he's wise and loving beyond our knowledge, beyond our understanding. This is his purpose of election. She was told the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And again and again and again, God chooses the weaker one. 
God chooses David, the last of Jesse's many noble sons, to be his king. God chooses Joseph to rise up and save the world through Egypt, to save the world. That last son who who dreams that all of his brothers would bow down and worship him. God chooses the true seed of Abraham, the true child of promise, born a virgin, to die for our salvation. The pattern is persistent. The blessing is a gift of grace. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. Brothers and sisters, election is a difficult doctrine, but it humbles us. None of us deserves the Lord's blessing. None of us are clothed appropriately for the wedding feast to which we have been invited. We didn't, even, we didn't even open the invitation. He has to send out servants to find us wandering around in the street, grab us, and pull us in to the most incredible, blessed party feast ever. We are on the guest list. How do I know, Pastor? How do I know I'm elect? Do you hear the voice of Christ? Do you trust in Him? His sheep hear His voice. You can know. This bread and wine are a confirmation, a seal, that you are his children. Faith is not our doing. Faith isn't how we earn our way into this party. It is an instrument of receiving. Faithful people are children because it's by faith that he gives us his blessings. It's an open hand. Clinging to this life preserver before we go under the stormy waters of life. We are... As we'll sing in Psalm 105, we are the chosen seed of Abraham because we are in Christ. We are Jacob's children, too. Let us pray. Merciful God, give us ears to hear the messages of Scripture on the lips of Sarah, our mother, on the lips of Abraham, our father in the faith. Help us to trust and look to a heavenly city for our only comfort in life and death. For we are purchased by Christ and set free by Him. Purchased out of the bondage of sin to freedom in Him. Bless us with the comfort and joy of that freedom. The joy of your promises kept as we commune together with one another in faith. In Christ's name, Amen.